So we've been in a series of conversations about big questions that our Oikos likes to ask. And in the first week of this series, we talked about the question, why are there so many different kinds of churches? Why are Christians so fragmented? And, you know, you drive down Glendora and there's 45 different types of churches. What is happening here? So we, we discussed that. And then we spent a couple of weeks on the question of why are Christians so uh, hypocritical, nasty, and judgmental? That was a fun time. <laughs> and uh, really engaged in some conversations of, of uh, self-examination to see how we can do a better job of loving people in our oikos. So today we're kind of, uh, in a certain kind of a way, extending that conversation a little bit, but talking about the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. And this is really, I think, the biggest evidence against Christianity and the truthfulness of Christianity. So it's a, it's a, it's a conversation that we need to take fairly seriously um, in, as we're talking to people that are in our oikos, people who have lapsed in their faith. Many of them lapse in their faith because of some version of this question. Um, and many people, it's also an obstacle for unbelievers to come to faith. They're really trying to grapple with this issue. When we think about the problem of pain, evil, and suffering, this is really a question of how can there be a God? I can't make sense of a God in light of my current reality, the pain that, and suffering that I am in. And this is a very real concern that many people have. Many of us might have heard something along these lines from, from people, and you might even have, have had these thoughts in your life, is the existence of pain, evil, and suffering is proof that God does not exist. It's actually looked upon as being an active proof against the Christian worldview. If an all-good, all-loving, and all-powerful God exists, why doesn't he remove my pain? Why is there cancer? Anyone who's lost a loved one from cancer has had these kinds of uh, problems. Where was God? That's another form of the question. Where was God when my child died? Where was God when my husband left me? Where was God when my parents divorced? These are all questions that is very common and universal to the human experience. In fact, it's a very ancient thought train. All the way back to uh, the book of Habakkuk has a great little section in chapter one. It says, how long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Where is God? Where are you? When I look at these things, destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. There's, there's a, a view of scripture that we get, especially in the prophets and in the poetry books, that something is dreadfully wrong with the world. Something has gone wrong. And things are not the way that God intended them to be. And if we were to go around the room this morning, I'm sure each one of us could relay a story 
of something painful that we have had to endure, something that felt unjust, something that we wish God would have taken away from us, right? Where is God? And let me tell you, the time to think about your theology of the pain, of pain, evil, and suffering is not when you're suffering. Yeah. <laughs> okay? Uh, in 2003, uh, one night... My daughter, Abigail, was about five days old, and there was a night where my poor husband had, had been with me in the hospital for several days. I was very sick after a- Abby was born, and um, my mother came to relieve my husband so he could go get a good night's sleep and not just sleep in a chair, you know, and so she came to stay with me one night in the hospital, and she knew something was wrong, and bless her heart, she... she kind of forced those nurses to call the doctor. And you know it's bad news when a doctor shows up in the middle of the night in your hospital room. You know something has come off the rails because that doctor probably got up out of bed and drove there. This wasn't just the on-call doctor. This was my doctor. And he comes in and he starts ordering all these tests. So they wheel me down at 2 in the morning in the basement at Whittier Presbyterian Hospital, and I'm laying there on a gurney, and it's cold, and I'm waiting for some technician to be woken up and come give me some tests. And I'm laying there, and I think, I'm going to die. I'm going to die in the basement of Whittier Presbyterian Hospital in the middle of the night. There is nobody around. I can't breathe. I'm sick, they don't know what's wrong with me, and I am going to die. I'm not going to see my children grow up. That was a real, and I felt like death was right there. It was just so close to me. I really thought I was going to die in that moment. It was scary. And I remember, this is the theologian in me, I remember my second thought was, now's not a good time to think through my theology of evil, pain, and suffering. (laughs) I'm glad I got that all worked out in seminary, right? Because the thought of not raising my children, the thought of Emily only being three years old and and Abigail being five days old and thinking, my husband's going to be alone. I am not going to see my children grow up. I thought in that moment, like, God, where are you? Where are you? Why is this happening to me? It was a very difficult moment. So if you're in a a good emotional space, this is a great conversation to have. If you're feeling, if you're coming to this class today and you have a cancer diagnosis, this is going to be possibly a very difficult conversation for you to sit through because you're in the middle of a very difficult situation. And so I want to encourage you that um, when you talk about these things with people, there's a difference between uh, the philosophical problem of evil, pain, and suffering, and people who are actually living with the pain and the suffering. So there's, what we're gonna talk about today are two different approaches, okay? So here's how not to answer the, the, the question of evil, pain, and suffering, okay? Let's, let's be clear about that. Uh, don't, you don't want to just give an explanation. You don't want to just be in the philosophy, all right? Because there's usually more to it when somebody's grappling with that. Um, 
you don't want to have a fix it attitude. When you call, go to someone else and you say, I'm having a hard time because, you know, my child has cancer or my husband is dying or whatever that situation is. And the other person says, oh, yeah, I know exactly what that feels like. My hamster died when I was in the fourth grade. <laughs> you know, that is that's not useful. No. OK, so you want to enter into people's pain and suffering with them. You don't want to feel like you have to fix it, all right? Uh, it's probably not a good idea to give a superficial answer of, well, see, the problem with evil is all the result of human free will. Uh, that's not the time to have that conversation either, okay? So when we're talking about this, we need to differentiate, again, just like we did in the hypocrisy conversation, between the intellectual answer the logical answer, and the person's real-life pain. Those are two very different things. And so you have to be a bit discerning when you're in that conversation. What am I doing? What road am I going down? What kind of question is this? Does this person need an answer from logic and reasoning, or does this person need, is giving me an invitation to enter into their pain? Those are two very different goals. Very different discussions, right? And this is biblical. In Romans 12, 15, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. How many of you, it ever feels uncomfortable when somebody is suffering? Because we, we, we have this tendency of wanting to fix it. If I just give them the right answer, it's going to make it all better, right? But that's not what's needed. If you don't know what to say when somebody comes to you in, in pain, Here's something I found that's very helpful, is you ask them a question. Rather than thinking, I need to come up with the right answer, ask them a question. How can I support you right now? I found that to be a very helpful question. Is there anything I can do right now that would help you feel loved or cared about? Just ask them. Do you know that people aren't mind readers? Have, have we really grappled with that? So when you are the person that has pain and you go to somebody, don't, ex don't get mad that they can't read your mind. But if you're on the other side of it and you're hearing the pain and you don't think, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. What do I say? Just ask them a question. Just say, how can I support you right now? Is there anything I can do or say that would help? And I've, I've found that to open many more doors than to close them. That's very effective. And so if your default is to always go to a place of, I just want to fix this, is try to work on having a new default where you ask a question. How can I help? What do you need? Do you, when, when I was suffering from bipolar disorder, you know, it's not real PC to talk about mental illness. And I remember thinking, like, you know, if I had cancer, uh, there would be a meal train for me on Facebook. But because I've been in the psychiatric hospital for three months, nobody's making a meal train for me. They're all just kind of hoping that I figure stuff out and get back to normal and my emotions sort themselves out. Uh, nobody called me in that season. Nobody brought me food. And it was hard. That was a deep pain. It was a deep, painful time. 
But if I just said, I always wish, like, I wish somebody would just ask me a question. What could, you, what could I do? And I would say, could you make a meal for my family? Because I'm just too broken right now to figure out how I can barely even dress myself. And that was what I needed. But nobody knew that because nobody was a mind reader. So if you don't know, it's okay. Just start asking a question. You ever feel that awkwardness when somebody you know has someone in their life that passes away, you don't know how to comfort them, so then you, you say nothing. Well, that's useful. So you want to ask better questions, okay? So that's a little tip as to how to enter into uh, rejoicing with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Another little tip here is when somebody asks you some version of the question of why would God allow evil to happen to me, try not to answer the question right away. Try first asking them, I'm wondering of all the questions in the world that you could ask, why that one? Because I can tell you almost always there's a reason behind the question. There's a reason they want to know about the problem of evil. It's not because they're a budding philosopher. All right? It's because something painful has happened to them that they couldn't make sense of it. And they wondered, where is God? So ask them that. I wonder why you're asking that question. Can I ask that? Or I'm curious to know, what is, you know what's prompting that? Because there's almost always a personal situation. And be ready to listen to that. You might have to be a bit of a detective. You might have to drill down a little bit. So let's first talk about the philosophical problem of evil. This is important because... This is often looked upon as being an active evidence against Christianity. So it is important to show that it's not irrational to believe in God. And so we're going to look at the philosophical problem first. Now, here's the tricky part. The problem of evil involves at least three critical questions. And they're not easily discussed. Each one could potentially be its own class. <laughs> so the, the, how we answer the problem of evil is connected to at least three ideas. Our concept of the physical world, which we're going to tackle more next week, the impact of the fall of sin on the physical world, and probably you could add there and the impact of the fall, the fall on humanity. I probably should add that. And our concept or experience of God as our Father. This is a very complicated issue. And it's not probably something you're going to have a five-minute conversation with somebody about. It's probably going to take a while. It might take a few conversations. But these are the three issues that I think are involved. And there's other issues too, but these are the three kind of big ones that I came up with as to what is connected to the problem of evil. So here's the logic. If you go on any atheist website or you have a, a millennial or an, someone in the emerging generation in your oikos, um, this is what they're going to have been exposed to. And so you need to know this in some regard. If you have a grandchild or a child who's a teenager, um, this is what they've been exposed to. If God exists then he is all-loving, all-knowing, all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving. So I'm going to call that a triple-A God, 
okay, just for the sake of brevity. All right, that's what I mean when I'm going to say a triple-A God. He's all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing, okay? If a triple-A God exists, then there would be no evil. This is the second premise. Once again, I'm going to give my plug for take a logic class. It's a very useful class to take. Okay, now, there are certain um, assumptions under this second premise that people don't talk about, but they're there. And so you need to know what is underlying that second premise, is that if God is all-knowing, then he would know how to create a world without evil, because he's all-knowing. If he's all-powerful, then he would have the ability to create a world where he would be, have the ability to prevent evil or create a world without evil, right? If he is all-loving, then he would want to eliminate evil. These are very powerful assumptions under this problem. Then the third premise is evil exists. That's just an observation. I look out in the world, evil exists, right? Therefore, my conclusion is that a AAA God does not exist because it's not comp- the, the existence of evil is not compatible with the existence of an all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God. And if you believe in such a God, if you still believe in a AAA God, even though you acknowledge that evil exists, you are irrational. This is what the atheist is telling young people, is that you are irrational for believing in this God because you can't hold those two beliefs simultaneously, that evil exists and God is all-loving, all-powerful, and all-knowing. And so this is what leads many people. They might not have ever taken a class of logic. They've never, maybe they've never sat down and thought about the logical syllogism this way. But something in their life has led them to this belief. This God that you Christians talk about seems utterly incompatible with the pain, evil, and suffering that I see in the world. Those two things cannot go together. And... Often it's their own pain, and you are actually irrational for believing that. Now, there are a few other underlying assumptions that a AAA God would create a perfect world. And a perfect world has no evil in it, according to this definition. A AAA God would always eliminate evil, and there are no limits to what a AAA God can do. So if these are the types of questions, these are a little more sophisticated. These are the kinds of questions usually that people who are into science and philosophy ask. So if you have somebody in your oikos who is asking this level of questions, I suggest the book Why the Universe is the Way it Is by my boss, Hugh Ross. He really has, I think, the most helpful answer to these questions that I have read. And he comes at it from a very unique perspective as an astrophysicist. And so these are not likely questions you're going to encounter with everybody in your oikos. But sometimes if somebody just is of that orientation, of a more philosophical bent, these are the types of questions that are lingering for them. Or if they have knowledge of science, especially in the realm of astrophysics, this is usually troubling for them. Okay, So we won't belabor that point. I just want to make you aware of it. 
So the question is, is the existence of evil, pain, and suffering a direct evidence against the existence of God? Does it make Christianity incoherent or irrational? If God does exist, how can he be good in light of the reality that pain, evil, and suffering exist? And so what Christianity must show is that there is no inherent contradiction with the existence of a triple-A God and the existence of evil. So that's what we are going to try to demonstrate today. And uh, this was part of my struggle is that this is, oh man, you're in people's difficult life situations, but then there's this whole philosophy that you've got to work through. And there's really no way to teach this without at least going into some of the philosophy. So I hope that you will um, hang in there with me as we go through this. So I want you to think about, there's two, uh, oh, I don't have any pens today, but there's, there's two buckets of evil in the world, okay? We're going to look at the first one, which is called moral evil. Next week, we're going to look at a second bucket of evil. Uh, it's called natural evil, okay? So moral evil is the evil that we perpetrate on each other. You know, terrorists fly planes into buildings. That's a choice. That's moral evil. Uh, murder, rape, embezzlement, uh, spouses who, who abandon their children, abusive people, unjust situations. These are all examples of moral evil. Next week when we talk about natural evil, that's going to be um, more along the lines of natural disasters, disease, things that inflict evil upon us but are not the result of free choice, okay? So we need to keep those two. Uh, you know me, I like to help you have little organizational hooks or buckets when we talk about topics. And so we're going to just talk about that first bucket or that first hook today is moral evil. These are the evil that we perpetrate on each other. So the question here is if a, if a AAA God does exist and we as humans are allegedly created in his image, why are we so inclined to do so many immoral things? I mean, another way of framing this is if Christians who have the power of the Holy Spirit in them, living in them, the, the one true God, why do we perpetrate evil on each other? Uh, I think that this is a big question that many unbelievers have. They say, you know, you name the name of Christ. You claim that Jesus lives in you. And all of these people that have hurt me, abused me, harmed me, they also named the name of Christ. So how can that be? Your Christ must not be very powerful for transformation. This is a, this is a very hard question. Uh, why doesn't this all-powerful God do something to stop immoral behavior? It's like the prophet Habakkuk. You know, how long do I have to endure this? Why are you making my eyes look at all this injustice? But, or maybe he doesn't exist at all. And this is where many, this is the sad space that many people land in. Now, and that is, I'm going to uh, step back and kind of take a, Big look at uh, the big picture of scripture, okay? Because I think that um, there's a few verses we can point to that, that talk about evil, 
pain and suffering. But for me, I have found it more helpful to step back and look at the big story of Scripture. And I think it, it helps us to unwrap some of these questions. So we're going to try this. When we think about the world that God created in the beginning, okay, Genesis 1 and 2, and a little bit of chapter 3, when we think about that world, we often will say a phrase, we say, the world that God created was perfect. But the Bible doesn't actually say that. It doesn't actually ever use that phrase or that word to say that the world was perfect. It says it was good and it was very good. But it never says perfect. That's a phrase that we have kind of put onto the text. And I think that with that word, there's a lot of baggage. Because then we get into a discussion of our own concepts of what we think is perfect. And what perfect ought to look like. And in the beginning, when we see the world, we see a world that God created a world where moral evil was possible. My, as my boss says, the gate of, of Eden was open. God left the gate open that the enemy came in. He could have shut Satan out of the garden, right? But Satan came in. And so he created a world where evil was possible. And we also need to remember that Satan already existed. So in a sense, there had already been a fall of sorts. It wasn't a human fall, but it was an angelic fall. Thirdly, is that God apparently allowed Satan to have access to Eden. He let him come in. And fourthly, that Adam's actions then plunged all of humanity into sin. These are four very important points that we reflect on, I think, when we're thinking about the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. God did not create a perfect world. He created, in terms of our own notions of perfect, he created a world that would be a habitable home for human beings. And he set that up in such a way that evil could exist. And Satan had access to it, and humans could make evil choices. The atheist often means that there, no evil could be possible. And that's what we mean by perfect. Now, if we describe perfect as still including the possibility of evil, we could say that. But I'm just making the, the very modest point that Scripture never actually calls Eden perfect. It only calls it good and very good. And that, that is a word that we have kind of inserted into the text. So it's just something to, to reflect on, that, that we have our own concepts of what perfect means. And we would have to think about that. Like, what does it mean and what Eden was like and what things are like today and what changed at the fall? The, what happened at the fall? This is a very um, tricky issue, but we do know from Romans 5 that Adam's actions plunged all of humanity into sin. And so that all of his descendants come into the world and have this inherent sin problem. So before the fall, Adam was different than he was after the fall. He was able to make what we might call a free choice, 
between good and evil. But then after the fall, something happens to him. And he becomes tainted or distorted or he becomes dead in his sin and all of his progeny. And so there is a sense in which in the Christian worldview, we ought to expect moral evil. It shouldn't catch us by surprise. But we also ought to expect that something in us knows that something is wrong, that this is not the way that it was set up to be. And I think that for many unbelievers, that's the longing that they're talking about when they say, you know, why would God allow this? You know, all of those questions. What they're really expressing is a deep soulish knowing or longing that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. And we can say to them, you're absolutely right. That in the beginning, God set up a world where he, he set up free moral creatures and there wasn't sin. But he also set up a world where sin was possible and sin could enter into the world. This is, and in a way, you can affirm in them that longing. You're like, you're absolutely right. The, this, this world does contain a lot of evil, but we ought to expect that because in the Christian worldview, we would say that humanity has been plunged into sin. So uh, reframing the problem, uh, this is kind of the way of doing it. There's, I think the most, this is a little side note, the, the most influential living, influential um, philosopher today is a Christian man named Alvin Plantinga. You've probably never heard of him. And he is the head of philosophy at Notre Dame. And I like him because he's from my, my Dutch Reformed tribe. So he's, he's part of my people. I, I, I'm always on the lookout for some Dutch friends. So uh, Alvin Plantinga is a very important Christian thinker. And he has done more for the revival of Christianity in the academic realm than any other person. And he's probably somebody you've never heard of, but he is extremely important. And I think that uh, 25 years from now, 50 years from now, uh, philosophy students will read his works and, and really understand what a truly um, remarkable philosopher he was. So anyways, this, one of the important projects that Dr. Plantinga has been involved in is this problem of evil and showing that this is not an irrational, that Christianity is not irrational for the existence of evil. So this is how he reframes it, and it's very simple. And if somebody watches this YouTube video and you have a PhD in philosophy, my apologies up front for making this very simple. But uh, this is what we're, we're doing here. So we're going to reframe this as that a AAA God exists is our first premise. God created a world which contains evil and has good reasons for doing so is our second premise. Our third premise is that a world containing creatures that are significantly free to perform more good than evil actions is more valuable than a world containing no free creatures at all that there is something inherently valuable in creating a world with free creatures. This is his idea.
Premise four is that God set up a universe where he does not cause or determine a free creature to only do what is right. This is what we often call the robot analogy. God didn't make robots, right? He created free creatures and that there was something inherently valuable about making free creatures. And he, if he had created a world where f- these creatures could only do what was right, then they wouldn't be significantly free. Right. Number five, to create creatures who are capable of doing moral good, God must also create creatures who are also capable of doing moral evil. Some of the free creatures God created wrongly use their freedom. And this is the source of moral evil. It's when God's free creatures misuse their freedom and inflict, inflict pain, evil, and suffering on others. Something has gone dreadfully wrong. And finally, number seven, premise seven is this doesn't impugn the existence of an, a AAA God because he could have only prevented evil by eliminating the choice for moral good. Therefore, the world contains evil, but is consistent with the existence of a AAA God. Now, you might not find this very satisfying at all, but this is for your philosophy friends, just so that you can think about it and understand that Christianity is not irrational, that this is, there, there is a, a coherent, sound, logical argument which makes it uh, compatible that evil exists, and so does this all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God. Okay? I like how my friend Jay Warner Wallace says it. He calls it, this is his simplified way of saying it, is he calls it a love-possible world. That if love is going to be possible, you need to have free creatures who can choose love. Right? Those of us who are parents... We want our children to freely choose to have a relationship with us, right? We hope. (laughs) Sometimes they don't make that choice (laughs) after they move out. Uh, But we we want our children to have a relationship with us. We want them to choose us. We don't want to compel them, right? That relationship is not as satisfying. It's a love possible world. If God was going to create a world where love was possible with his creatures, he had to create creatures that were significantly free. And if they're going to be significantly free, they have to be able to be free to choose either good or evil. Now we're going to go back to our big picture on on theology here, okay? So in this creation, this creation, this world... This existence and this creation, God allows his creatures to make evil choices. This is a reality that is before us. He allows that. Jesus, though, began the task of overcoming evil, pain, death, and suffering at the resurrection. We're in these conversations right now in our church that the resurrection changes everything. And I want you to know today that the resurrection is the answer in part to the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. Because Jesus has put to, get, put to death, death. And he is kind of the preview of coming attractions for how evil, pain, and suffering will eventually be eliminated. In his resurrection, we see the, the beginning of the great reversal of the curse of the fall. 
we are living, we, meaning we Christians, are living in the now and the not yet. Our current reality is that we live in this world, and this world is filled with evil, pain, and suffering. That's the now. But we also have the Holy Spirit living in us. That's the not yet. That's, that's the preview of the, the life to come in the new heavens and the new earth, right? And we, as Christians, ought to be being transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit to live morally good lives and participate less with moral evil, right? So the resurrection is the now and the not yet. Jesus has resurrected. Our resurrection is to come. Jesus' resurrection is the now. Our resurrection is the not yet. We live in this tension. And so this is why sometimes God breaks through with a miracle. It's a preview of the not yet. He breaks the order of the evil pain and suffering with a miracle. And that's what he's doing with the resurrection. And But we live in this world of evil, pain, and suffering. And we can't escape that until we go to the new creation, right? So in this creation, this is our reality. In the new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth, evil will be judged and put to an end. This has an end. Evil, God will not allow evil to go on forever unchecked. It will come to an end. I think personally part of God's grace uh, in preventing us from having access to the tree of life in Eden is that there's limits to evil. Imagine if Adolf Hitler had access to the tree of life and he could keep living. That would be multiplication of evil. So there's things that God has put in place to help limit the pain, evil, and suffering. It could be much, much worse. But God in his grace says, we're gonna, we're, we're gonna, I'm going to tolerate this much, and I'm going to make provision so it's not this much. But he doesn't eliminate it in the now. But one day in the not yet, he will. Okay. There will be no more death, crying, or pain. And there will be perfect justice. All injustice will be put right. So sometimes our longing is for perfect justice in this creation, right? We want perfect justice. But it's not there. It's not probably going to happen in this creation. Sometimes it does. Like you go to court and where an evil is going to be adjudicated. Sometimes justice happens and sometimes it doesn't. But there will be that first judgment seat of Christ where things, the evil will, we will see everything perfectly, right? The, who, where the real evil is. Here's another way of thinking about this. An all-knowing God would know how to eliminate evil. An all-loving God would want to eliminate evil. An omnipotent God would be able to eliminate evil. Therefore, even though evil exists now, God will eliminate it in the future. And so I think that part of the problem that many people stumble with over the problem of evil 
is that they're so focused on this life that everything must be put right in this life, that we want to have no evil, pain, and suffering in this life. And I think the distinctive of the Christian worldview is that we say this isn't the whole reality. There's another reality to come where things will be put right. And this is the hard part of this, I think, for many unbelievers, is that they want God to intervene now. They want things to be just now. And because they often only see this three dimensions of space and one dimension of time universe, they haven't considered the big picture, as I'm calling it. And we know that God could set up a different reality. He did set up a different world with the angels. So he does have other possibilities. But even in that realm, in the angelic realm, there was still free choice, wasn't there? And that happened. But those creatures don't need a physical habitable planet. But then he decided to create creatures that needed a physical habitable, habitable planet. So we know that God has options. But that he, when he sets things up in the new creation, it seems like he's going to set up a world where evil, pain, and suffering are no more. Yeah. So if you look at this sheet that I also gave you, this is from a little table that is in my Bible study book that I wrote on... Uh, Genesis. And this is a, a helpful table to go through and compare and contrast Genesis 1 to 3 with Revelation 20 and 21. And what you see there, Laura, in, in, um, partly in answer to your question, is that uh, there's a lot of parallels. It talks about the tree of life in early in Genesis and then again in Revelation. Um, Satan is allowed access to Eden but he has barred access in the new creation. Um, there's the potential for pain that's allowed before the fall, which we'll get into next week. And then Revelation 21, there's no more death, mourning, or pain. So we see this compare and contrast. Um, humans are commissioned to rule over creation in Genesis. And in the new creation, they will reign with Christ. We don't know what we're going to be reigning over, but... <laughs> There's a few little hints here and there. Maybe we will, we will judge the angels, as it says in Corinthians. But there's some hints that we will be governing in some way. Um, the, uh, let's see. Impurity never enters the new creation in uh, Revelation 21, 27. Um, fellowship with God is available before the fall. After the fall, fellowship with God is broken and in the new creation, fellowship with God is restored. And so what we are looking forward to in the new creation is we're not going back to Eden. Eden, I think, is a type or a shadow of the new creation. But it's still incomplete, just as the, the tabernacle was a type or a shadow of the reality of Jesus Christ. Right. So we don't want to go back to the tabernacle. We don't want to go back to Eden. We don't want to go back to the type or the shadow Rather, we want to push forward to the new creation and how it will be different than this creation after the fall or Eden before the fall. The reality of evil, pain, and suffering, I don't think helps the atheist worldview at all. It still presents its own set of problems 
for them. And I'm just going to briefly go through that. Is that I actually think, well, first of all, let's ask the question is, we haven't even considered this question yet, is what is evil? Is, is evil a thing? You know, in Eastern religions, evil is a thing. It's good and evil, and they're, they're opposite parts, and they're kind of co-equally um, powerful. But in the Christian worldview, <clears throat> going back to the ancients, it's that evil is the absence of good. It's a distortion of the good. It's not a thing. It's an absence of the good. And to call something evil, I think, implies that there must be an objective standard of good that's messed up. And I think this is part of the heart longing of many unbelievers. And you can affirm in your oikos when they're crying out of like, you know, this, this pain is hard. Enduring this, this difficulty is hard. Yes, you're right. But this is a pointer to the new creation where everything will be set right. And we will not have evil pain and suffering anymore. Alvin Plantinga talks about how there is this part of us that God created us. He calls it having a properly basic belief, which is just philosophers like to invent terms. But what that means is that God has created us with an inherent desire to believe in him and have relationship with him and worship him. That is our natural way of being. But that gets hijacked in the fall. But the, the, the idea that, that belief in God is still properly basic is still there. It's just more latent after sin gets introduced. It becomes more complicated. So yes, Brent, I think that the, the presence of Satan is a big component of it. I don't even pretend to know how free will is going to work in the new creation. But I think if Alvin Plantinga is correct, we will freely choose to worship God because that is how he has created us. And that is our properly basic way of being. And we will be kind of entering into our true reality, our true identity into how God has created us. That's a theory. That's a speculation. What's important to know about Adam is that his free will is fundamentally different than our free will because he didn't have the influence of a sin nature. And so he was um, what St. Augustine called able not to sin. So he was born in such a, or created in such a way that he could choose more freely to sin or not sin. We don't have quite that same level of free will because our will has been influenced and impacted by Adam's sin. And in him, we are sinners. And so the classical way of saying that is we are able, we are, what is it? We are not able not to sin as an unbeliever. But then when the Holy Spirit comes into us, that's more closer to what Adam experienced in that we are able to either sin or not sin. So I want to read this quote by C.S. Lewis. He says, uh, when he was an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? Like, where did that come from? A man does not call a line crooked 
unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? And so there's a sense in which the existence of evil um, doesn't completely help the atheist because he in some way has to assume that there is a concept of what is right or just to make the complaint that something is unjust or not right. So when the atheist complains about the unjust nature of Adolf Hitler killing the Jews, that is him borrowing my worldview in a way. Because he's saying that random killing for a people group because of their religion is not a good thing. That's morally wrong. Well, if the universe is just some big cosmic accident, how did you arrive at any notion of universal moral right or wrong? You have just borrowed collateral from my worldview. So I'm not sure that the atheist is necessarily uh, on completely comfortable ground with this observation. But it's still important for us to at least have an understanding that Christianity is not an irrational position when it comes to the problem of evil. So a lie requires a concept of truth. We've got all this cultural conversation right now about fake news. Now here's, here's what I find fascinating about this conversation. I have a little video on my YouTube channel about this. As I said, the very phraseology of fake news assumes that there is something called true news or real news that actually corresponds to reality. Okay, but we live in this weird postmodern culture where everything is subjective and everything's about your point of view and reality is what you make of it. And they don't, they don't hold to an objective reality. But these are the same people that are all upset about fake news. And I'm like, look, if there's fake news, then there's true news. And if there's true news, then that means that you hold to some objective standard that some things are true and some things are not. And if you're going to say that some things are true, then that's saying it corresponds to reality, corresponds to facts. And if that's true, I think that you have to have a concept of truth, that something is objectively true. It's not just about your subjective opinions, experiences, thoughts, beliefs, or that sort of thing. Again, they're borrowing from my worldview, which I, which I welcome. <laughs> Injustice requires a concept of justice. When somebody stands outside a courtroom after a, a verdict that they don't agree with and they say it was unjust, that means they have a concept of what ought to be just. And I think that that is an idea that is an objective reality, a concept of what is just and what is not just. And that is rooted and grounded, I think, in the character of God. Yeah. And so the, the very idea of calling something evil, to me, assumes that there is a standard of good on some level. If the universe has no meaning, then why is there... This is a great question. If the universe has no meaning, then why is there so much good in the world? Why do some people live self-sacrificially? This is, a, this is an important question 
Because if the universe is the, uh, just a big cosmic accident and, there's no, and morality is all just human convention that we make up and it varies from culture to culture and nobody can tell anybody that something is more morally right than anything else, then why do we praise people who live sacrificially? Why do we call some people good? Where do we get this concept of good? And that it's more noble to be Mother Teresa than it is to be Adolf Hitler. Where do we get that idea? Why is being morally good and kind being looked upon as being right and murder being as seen as being evil? As I was meditating on this this week and as I was talking about the lesson with the Lord, he was kind of bringing it to my attention that uh, the church is part of the answer to the problem of evil, pain, and suffering. Last, last two weeks, we talked about hypocrisy. Now, sometimes we don't always do a great job of relieving people's pain and suffering. In fact, sometimes we actually contribute to it, sometimes inadvertently. But there's a sense in which I think that the church ought to be an answer to the problem of evil in this creation, right? And uh, we often hear the phrase, um, you know, we see something evil and we say, uh, someone should do something about that. Someone should help that person. Somebody should do something to improve that situation. And I've really been wrestling with uh, the reality that I am someone. And when we think about the, the reality of our identity in Christ, that we do have the power of the living God living within us. We, part of our identity in Christ, I think, is to begin to conceive of ourselves as part of the answer to evil, pain, and suffering on some level. For example, um, many countries have problems with needing sources for drinking water. And many sicknesses can come from contaminated drinking water. And we just take drinking water for granted unless you live in Flint, Michigan. It's, you know, we turn on the faucet and we put our cup under there and we drink it, right? We don't hardly think anything about it. It's not like when my grandmother was, you know, a child and water was more scarce. And you had to, sometimes you had to, in some situations, go to a well or you had to do things to boil your water and make sure it was safe. We don't have to worry about that. But we can do things to help alleviate the suffering of people in other countries by helping them build wells and making sure that they have access to drinking water. That's a very practical way that the church helps to alleviate pain, evil, and suffering. The idea of hospitals, the idea of like the Salvation Army, the idea of, of helping the poor and the indigent, many of those great institutions were done as, a, as an outworking of the Christian worldview. That we ought to, it's a noble thing to relieve the suffering and pain of other people, whether that's through medicine or clean drinking water or giving people clothes or giving them meals, that this is a noble part of the Christian worldview. And so what I'd like 
to challenge you is that uh, in the ministry of Jesus, he often would travel, and as he would travel, he would heal the sick, and he would cast out demons. And this was a way of bringing the kingdom of God, the not yet, on earth as it is in heaven. It would break through, and he would see the suffering of people, and he would begin to minister to them. And in that way, Jesus is the, the answer to pain, evil, and suffering. And we want to present Christianity um, not as something to shrink away from the problem of pain, evil, and suffering, but rather to meditate on what can I do to relieve people's pain around me? Jesus, how is Jesus going to be the answer for this person? And I think a lot of times we, we, we don't meditate enough on that. We're not really sure Jesus is powerful enough to really intervene in people's suffering. And I want to encourage you today that Jesus is the answer to the problem of pain, evil, and suffering. It's the cross, it's the resurrection, and it's our role as his deputized disciples to, to walk with kingdom power and authority on this earth and to bring the, the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And to begin to think about that as part of your identity. And I hope that that, that will um, give you something to think about. So this isn't just an abstract philosophical concept, although we have talked about some philosophy today. But something very practical for you to meditate and contemplate as to how you are part of God's army to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. And the now and the not yet tension that we live in. And sometimes God does intervene in this creation. And to allow for that possibility in your ministry with your oikos. Okay? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for how you meet us in our suffering. Suffering is difficult. It can be challenging in the day-to-day. And Lord, we know that if we only look at this life in this three dimensions of space and one dimension of time universe, this is all we see. But Lord, we ask today that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see into the spirit that we would see how you see things, that you would give us your eyes and change and transform our hearts to bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen.